welcome to the Irish in Sweden podcast, my friends. A little bit late this week because I'm on the sickbed of Cúchulán and feeling terrible, sorry for myself altogether. My name is Philip O'Connor. You are listening to the podcast for the Irish community in Sweden. And as you can hear, uh, there almost wasn't a podcast this week because I'm in bits altogether. But I have a couple of interviews done, so I said the show must go on, boys and girls. I was hoping that by today, Tuesday, I would have been feeling better, but I'm not. Uh, I've had a terrible sort of uh, chest infection or some kind of crack there over the weekend. But the show must go on. And that is why I'm bringing you this interview now. Not going to be too much talk about what's going on in the Irish community. I will tell you that there's a few things going on with the Swedish-Irish Society on the literary front. And there's a book club opening up and they're going to be getting together to read Ulysses and all that. But to be honest, uh, I'm sitting here with a fever so I haven't had the chance to pull all the details of that together. We'll get to that next week and we'll get to Dorian Burke next week uh, with also the great tips about renewing your passport and getting a new passport or applying for a passport for your children. She gave me some brilliant information about that and that will be the subject of next week's podcast. For this week's podcast, this is a great time of the year because uh, all of a sudden you find that, you know, Christmas is over and there's a lot of events happening. And we've mentioned Seven Drunken Nights, the show about the story of the Dubliners, which is coming to Stockholm very soon. But I got a message from John Carroll to say that his cousin's husband, Cormac Moore, legendary Irish comedian, is coming over to play on these shores in the very near future. So I said I'd have to get in touch with Cormac and see what he's up to and we'll put him out there. Stand-up comedy is one of my favourite art forms. So, like, when you see people getting up there and saying, look, I'm going to be funny now for the next 40 minutes or 50 minutes or an hour or something like that. I think it takes great bravery and the people who do it are tremendously skilled and Cormac is among the very, very best of them. So I said I'd get in touch with him and in the show notes you will hopefully find a link uh, to where you can get tickets for Cormac's show, right? Before we go into the interview, remember this is a community-supported podcast. It's supported by the great Martin Hessian, a fantastic man in our community, owner of Veerstrom's Pub. Uh, you will have noticed that the Six Nations have started now and if you just happened to sort of barge up to the door last Friday just before Ireland beat France, you will have noticed that it was hard to get a table. Get in touch with Martin. Book your tables in good time, lads, for all the Six Nations matches. We beat France the other night. It was a great performance. There's every chance we're going to win another Grand Slam, giving a bit of a hostage to fortune there, but there you go. Uh, so get your tables booked with Martin. And of course, the Irish Chamber of Commerce in Sweden have been very generous in terms of supporting the podcast in, uh, in the past as well. You can do it personally if you go to patreon.com forward slash our man in Stockholm. A five or a month there will get you around about 100 podcasts a year at this stage. And uh, I don't think that's bad value for money and everything you do helps to, uh, to keep me bringing these podcasts to you and as we come up into St. Patrick's Day and the busy times of the year and that kind of thing uh, I really do appreciate the support from anybody who can do it listen that's enough out of me because I'm about to start spluttering again here's Cormac Moore on what you can expect from his stand-up show coming up in February right here in Stockholm So I got the message this week, Cormac, that you are on the way to these Swedish shores to bring with uh, to bring us your stand-up show. How did the gig come about? Did somebody sort of, you know, were they coming at you from all corners of the world trying to get you to come here and Sweden won the bid? Was that it? A lengthy briefing proposal process. And then, uh, yeah, it was finally awarded to Sweden. So that'll be this February's gig. No, it's an honor. It's an you, honor. And <laughs> to be honest with you, I, I can't, uh, I can't wait. I've, it's been on my like bucket list of countries to go to. Sweden has always been up there. So um, I, I can't wait. But no, just uh, the guy who runs the gig, I just got an email like at the start of the year so saying like uh, he found us online and was just like, here, do you fancy coming over doing a, doing a gig? So I think they run a monthly in- English speaking comedy night there. So he just said, do you fancy coming over? And I was like, 100% yes. 
Uh, when you take on a gig like that, Cormac, because obviously, uh, am I right in saying that your audience would mostly be sort of, you know, in Ireland, in the UK, in English-speaking countries? Is this your first time uh, playing a gig outside of the, sort of the English-speaking world, so to speak? No. So th- th- I did one, I gigged in Malaysia before um, in Kuala Lumpur, and um, that was the one thing I was in, very worried about because, uh, yeah, like, it can be very difficult playing to audiences and you don't realize maybe your Irish references or your Irish colloquialisms or your in jokes kind of like that. And uh, it, it can be difficult, but no, I've done, I've done Malay, I played in Malaysia before and I was very worried about that, but it turned out to be, turned out to be great. I'm uh, I'm brilliant crack. So I, I'm wondering, I've heard one or two things about the Swedish audience now, and you can tell me whether this is correct and right or not. I don't know if you've been to any shows over there, but um, I've been told before that, they're obviously very polite, very well-mannered, wouldn't be as rowdy as Irish or let's say English audiences and very much will sit and enjoy the show. But I've heard from other comics who've done like Sweden and Norway, Scandinavian countries that like they nearly treat it as a movie and that they'll sit and they'll smile and they'll laugh and they'll shut up. But from the comedian's perspective, it might look like they're having kind of sitting there. And then after the show, they're like, oh, that was amazing. Happy days. But for the, for the, you know, 20, 30, 40 minutes that the comedian's performing, I've heard, you know, stories that it's just like, this is, I'm dying on my backside here and it's not going well at all, but they're actually really enjoying themselves. So that's one kind of thing I'm anxious about is that maybe they're not as animated or as, as, uh, uh, I don't want to say rude is the wrong word, but you know, the Irish people like to get involved in a show and have to crack whatever, and they'll interact a bit more. So that's the one thing. Are they, are they, uh, going to be just kind of sitting back, taking it all in, enjoying it, but maybe looking like they're hating me. So I don't know. It's very funny. I was reading an interview this morning in Elle magazine, right? Not a great man for the women's magazines, it has to be said. But it was an interview with the former Swedish, uh, sorry, former Finnish Prime Minister, uh, Sanna Marin. And the journalist actually wrote in the piece that none of my attempts at humour worked, you know? So it is something entirely different. It's very yeah. difficult to impress sort of Swedish or Finnish people. There has been, I've seen Darrell Breen over here, people rolled in the, in the aisles. And then there was the famous night that Tommy Tiernan came over with a show that was entirely improvised right. from start to finish, right? I still I, refer yeah. to it as one of the bravest things I've ever seen, but that was, it was hitting me. It is a little bit like that. But, <laughs> but the other thing that Tommy said, comic, and this could be interesting now when we talk about the kind of material that you do. When I was talking to him afterwards, I asked him, do you change your set? Like when you go to Malaysia, obviously you can't make too many camogie jokes when you're in Malaysia, right? So will you sort of sit there and go through your material and go, nah, that's not going to work. <laughs> no, Brennan's bread, no, that's gone as well, you know? Do you have to do that with your set? Or are you going to do what Tommy said to me? when He, he always said, if you're going to see a blues musician, you want to hear that, you don't want to hear them singing about Donna Mead. You want to hear them singing about the Delta kind of thing. So how are you going to approach the set for that night then? So it's funny you mention that because there's a, a really good club in Dublin, right? The Stag's Head which is probably one of the most popular, the comedy crunch at the Stag's Head, and it's on every Sunday night, right? And that is probably one of the most well-known popular comedy clubs. It's always rammed, but it's always full of tourists, right? So I would say like 20% of the crowd are Irish and 80% are are, are traveler, are traveling and holidaymakers and tourists and a whole lot, right? So they'd be uh, from all over the place. And the first time I did a gig there, I had some material that referenced a 99. You know, 99 ice cream cone would be known in Ireland and maybe in the UK, right? But the term 99 wouldn't be known outside of Ireland or England, right? And I had a joke and the whole punchline was was relying on that. And I just remember I died on my arse because no one got the reference at all. And I didn't realize that obviously... It dawned on me afterwards. And then the next time I went back and did it again, I just changed it to a McFlurry. And they were like, ah, oh, okay. And I, it just it just dawned on me as soon as I had said it out loud in front of people from France and Spain and Germany. I was like, they've no idea what I'm on about right now. And they're, you know, just this glazed look in their eyes. And I'm like, ah, uh, okay. But sometimes you're going to have to, you have to die in your ass sometimes to, to realize that 
the change that you need to make. And then when I came back and I just changed it from then on, I just changed it to like a, a, a McFlurry or whatever, because it wasn't really that important. It was just, you know, it was just a comparison that I was making between something else. Um, and as soon as I started doing that, it was like, oh, okay. But definitely, I think one of the things I've noticed over the years is that when a lot of people, when you start off doing comedy, you are are very much localized to your references and to the things you know because it can get a, a very good quick laugh you know there's jokes about copperface jacks and you're like in the guy and all this kind of stuff and, and and it's like that all works fine but as soon as you start being put in front of an audience not from your your country you just you've no material then do you know what i mean and you're kind of you're dying on your backside and you've absolutely no idea they've, they've no idea what's going on so i've tried to make it more uh more maybe it's more personal uh less referencing specific let's say places or things and like because the show I'm, I'm touring at the moment as well it's more about um you know um my experiences with making mistakes at work or my experiences uh you know having awkward inappropriate health scares and conversation with doctors so i think the more the more personal you make it the more universal it is do you know what i mean so you don't need to talk about o'connell street or you don't need to talk about uh temple bar or anything like that you can just the more you talk about your, your your situations in life, I think that is what will um, tra- translate regardless of whatever country you're in, you know what I mean? Because everyone has awkward conversations with their father-in-law, everyone has awkward conversations with, you know, uh, messing up at work, that kind of stuff. So I think that's what I've learned over the last while is it'll definitely be, the, there, should, there isn't too many Irish references in my material, I don't think anyway, because, mm. because of that, because I know 100% that it, it's, it's fine for an Irish audience, but if you're abroad, you'll, you'll just be standing there in silence and it's, uh, <laughs> it's not a fun experience nobody's going to get any crack out of that kind of thing you know it's fascinating because like there are sort of various different ways of approaching it you mentioned the concept there and uh very open about it the concept of dying on your arse among comedians everybody yeah. in comedy knows what that means right um do yeah. you take that personally right when you go and you do a gig and you say 99 instead of mcflurry and you just stand there and you, you give the punchline there's no joke and you go does a little bit of you re- actually physically die inside or is it something that you go you know what that was every that time philip every every time and it's uh the only way i can describe it to you is right have you ever been you know when you're down the pub with your mates whatever right and on this story that you heard and you thought it was hilarious you're like you'll never hear what happened to x y and z and you're sitting around and all your mates are there's like four or five of them around the table and they're sitting there and they're listening to you and you're going on and on and then you realize you're not telling it very well and you're tripping up over yourself and they're looking at you and you suddenly realize that you're making Hames of this, right? And you, you know, they look at you and they don't laugh, and they're just like, "What?" You know, that's horrible, sinking feeling in your stomach where you're like, "Everyone hates me now, uh, and, and I'm an idiot." It is the most uncomfortable experience in the world because it's such a rejection of who you are as a person. Because I've thought about this before, right? What you find funny is a reflection of your personality. It's a reflection of your your even your political leanings, right? It's a reflection of everything. And you can't uh, can't really hide what you find funny. It's a very unconscious thing as well. So when you're trying to make somebody else laugh and you get rejected, it's like they're rejecting every fiber of your beliefs and of your and of your psyche you, and, and of you everything. You are a bad yeah. person and nobody you, should like you. A hundred percent. It's like everything about you is is wrong and you're just doing it wrong. So it is, I'd love to say it gets easier with time, but it's still probably one of the most horrible feelings ever because you're being, you're publicly shaming yourself. I think that's the worst part is when it doesn't work, it's like you're publicly shaming yourself. And I think just as a human emotion, that's the one of the worst things you can ever experience is when nobody likes you in the room. And like, 
<laughs> you then just start, like, it's worse as well, uh, you, if you have a two hour drive home after a gig like that, you're left in the car with your own thoughts and they're just never great thoughts. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you're driving home and you're just like, what am I doing with my life? Why am I even bothering with this? Blah, 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 blah. And you, you, you can start to just question your entire existence and your life choices. And you're going, oh my God. But in saying that, uh, every comedian will have a certain number of bad gigs, right? And I think that the more you go on, you start off, it's usually... Maybe it's 50-50, maybe it's you have more bad gigs than good gigs. And if you start kind of going and getting a little bit better and maybe getting a bit of advice off people, so half your gigs are okay, half your gigs are not okay. But then I think the more you do it and you start taking it seriously and you kind of work on your set and you understand what's what's working and what's not working and, and you kind of build, you know, maybe you started off with, with three minutes of good material out of 10 uh, and then as the years go on, now you have three, three minute bits from three other sets and you can start kind of cutting the fat and chopping stuff away. So now you've got three or four stronger bits. So, you know, you kind of get confident, you know, that it works. So after a while, you might have a good 10 or 15 minutes that you kind of confidently know nine times out of 10 is going to work. Right. And it does. So you kind of start having less and less bad gigs, hopefully, but you will still have one gig to kick you in the arse and bring you back down to earth. And don't, don't you be worried about that. And I'll tell you like, sometimes, uh, Sometimes it's the location's fault, right? And that's a good way to blame it is you blame the location or the venue you're in. And I'll give you an example. I was doing a gig with, uh, before Christmas with uh, Pat McDonald, Owen McLove from Father Ted, right? Yeah, I've no Willie and the jumper guy, right? So Pat, Pat's brilliant crack and Pat's a phenomenal stand-up comedian as well. If you've never seen him, his stuff is brilliant, right? But we were originally booked to do a marquee at the back of a pub in, in this small little town in Limerick somewhere, right? About two and a half, three hour drive in the middle of nowhere. And it was like, it's going to be a marquee. It's a fundraiser for a school. There's going to be a couple of hundred people there. And we were like, brilliant. No brainer. Sign us up. We'll be there. So then on the day, it was like, listen, the tickets didn't really sell because the school who the fundraiser was for, they never uh, sent out the email. They never promoted it. So th there's only about 50 or 60 people coming. And then we got there, we were told, listen, the 50 or 60 tickets are sold, but only about 20 or 30 people are coming. So we're going to move it inside. And the gig, instead of being out in the marquee in the back, was in the front bar of a local Owlad pub. There was no stage. There was no light. There was no, we were literally standing under a TV that was turned off. The bar wasn't closed. The TV was still on. And in the middle of our so-called stage was the main door from the street into the venue. So me and Pat, and there was one other guy with us as well, we're just sitting there and you just know it's going to be a horrible gig. You know, you just know that this is going to be work. This is going to be hell. That we were interrupting the locals pints. Do you know what I mean? Like, and, and they were looking at us going, what the hell? So you get gigs like that, which are just horrific. Like to be honest with you, it didn't work out too bad in the end, but it's stuff like that can really be awful when people are throwing on gigs and maybe they've never done it before. And it just becomes the venue is setting you up to have a horrible gig because it, it was, I just remember it being so awkward. You're just standing there and there was the ladies toilets over to my right. So people were coming back and forth and the bar was open and you're just, and everyone was talking. You know what I mean? Cause this is a pub, like this isn't a venue. This is just a random local pub. So no one was listening to you. So those can be really like soul destroying and tough. And they're like, these are the ones you're just going to have to take on the chin and take your shame and do it because you've chose this life in many ways. Yeah. The great Joe Rooney, of course. You get a few of them every now and then uh, yeah. and you have to deal with it. But The great Joe yeah. Rooney, who's a good friend of Pat's, he was over here a few years ago, maybe 10 years ago, uh, around St. Patrick's Day. And he did a, a gig like that in a pub called the Liffey here in the old town in Stockholm. And it was in the public part of the bar. So the bar paid him and there was no, you didn't have to pay in and that, you know. And he was the one who told me previously what you just told me there, how important the venue is and having the right sound and the right light. And uh, like having the right expectation from the people who are there, right? You're there to see stand-up comedy. So please kindly shut the fuck up and listen to what the, the comic is saying and laugh when you're supposed. <laughs> 
supposed to laugh, you know. And that really, went, but Joe did a brilliant gig in, in very difficult. Now they weren't anywhere near as difficult. Seconds. I mean, it's bad enough being in Limerick without having to play there, kind of thing, you know. But um, when you get over here uh, to, to a place like this, you know, um, do people know? Uh, do you expect people to know who you are? Do you think they're going to look you up on YouTube? Are they going to listen to this podcast and have expectations of you? Or do you expect them to show up cold and go, right, Mister Funny Man, entertain me here? So I hope they show up cold. I guarantee you they won't, probably won't. They, maybe, well, I don't know if they, if they look online and stuff. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. I have no idea. But I think um, once they once they just are there, are there, like what I've often found as well is my fear when I started off doing stand-up comedy, right, was that you're going into a room full of people and they're going to hate you, right? And that was my one thing was like, you're standing up in front of a room full of people. Presenting in front of people is fine because you're not trying to make them laugh. You can go through slides, you can talk about a thing, happy days. But trying to make a room full of people laugh is a, it's a big claim to be able to make, right? And I always thought that that's exactly what the audience would be like, that to be like, right, sitting there, try and make me laugh. Idiot Irish boy coming over here, right? But then when I started doing it, I realized that most people, you have half of, half of your job is done when people pay to go see a comedy night because they want to laugh. You know, they want to have a good crack. They, they have already made the decision. We are going to comedy on Friday night. We're going to have a couple of drinks and we're going to enjoy our night. So they're not as confrontational as I, I used to imagine them in my head. If you know what I mean? They're not as like, oh, you try and make me laugh. Some people are. Like sometimes the English can be very much uh, a bit more aggressive in the crowd, a bit more like, oh, when's the comedy starting, mate? And you're like, all right, relax. But no, I think um, if, if I, I, it's usually they're a lot more receptive usually than what you think they're going to be. But even still, um, uh, it'll be fun to see how a Swedish audience is or reacts or if they're cold, if they're standoffish, uh, if they take us. Who knows? The funniest bit could be seeing the car crash. This could be amazing. <laughs> oh, look, at like, you know, I, I'm going to say, I may look at this show through my fingers, but it'll be entertaining one way or the other. You know? <laughs> the other thing I have to say, Cormac, is Swedish people, they do know comedy, right? So when they watch, yeah. like Friends was a huge show here, but even before that, people here love Monty Python. They love that dinner for two thing, you know, that really old 70s uh, physical comedy thing. And they show it every year, New Year's Eve, and the whole country watches it and this kind of thing. It's just, and, like, they see it every year, and yet they still laugh at the same sort of physical jokes and that kind of thing. So I do think that, you know, it, it is an open door you're pushing in i have to ask the question though right with all of those things that you just said right make me make me laugh irish boy right it's a big thing to get over to say i'm the person the funniest person in this room right now right most people never get over the threshold right so if i can ask this and i mean this with the best will in the world what was it that made you think that yeah no i, I could do this i can get away with this was it the fact that you were the funniest person uh, among the group of lads that you hang around with or in your family or that kind of thing what made you want to do this it was weird, right? Because it's something that I'd always wanted to do in the back of my head. It was just something that I was uh, attracted to in a weird way in my head. And I never, ever thought for years that it could be a possible career. Do you know what I mean? It was one of those like bucket list items that was in my head that said, I just love to give it a go. I, I thought I could do it. I was like, I just would love to give that a go. Like I was always a little bit of a uh, a messer or a, a bit of a, a a class clown for want of a better word. So I was always taking the piss and very sarcastic a, a lot of the time too. So I always just thought any gigs that I went to, I'd just be there. I'd love to be doing that. I'd love to be up on stage. I'd love to be trying it. And then um, like long story short, 
I had started to set up a company out of college, right? And I'd raised some money and got some financing for it. And that all went bust, right? So a couple of years afterwards, that all went bust. So I was kind of living at home with the mother. I had no money. I owed a lot of people a lot of money, right? And I just was watching Dave, that channel on Sky or whatever, at like two or three in the morning when they do the reruns at the stand-up. Sure, I might as well give it a go now because like there was nothing else happening. So I was like, I'll give it a go. And then when I thought about doing it, the thought of it doing it, terrified me right and uh i had never gotten that reaction before to something in my life so then i kind of know i actually think i actually really really want to do this because this is terrifying me you know what i mean ever not ever else but not, nothing else has gotten such a reaction out of me of actually trying to do something so as soon as i went to kind of book it i kind of <laughs> shat the bed a little bit and i was like oh no maybe i won't and then i, I eventually convinced myself to text the the guy who runs the open mic nights in dublin and then what's worse after that, he was like, Grant, there's a spot open for you in like two months time. So I thought it'd be like next week. So I had to wait for like two months to kind of go and do it. And, uh, and I went and I did it uh, and I loved it. Now, I can't remember my first gig at all because I was so like nervous and stressed and uh, I might have gotten a couple of laughs or whatever, but I just loved it and I enjoyed it. And then I said, I'd give myself three years of seeing where this goes. And if after three years, nothing happens, I'll get a real job and I'll just, you know, stop acting the market or whatever and, and get a real job. So it, it was more of a case of not standing there kind of going, oh, I could definitely do this. It was more a case of, could, I wanted to see if I could do it. Do you know what I mean? I was kind of like curious to see if I was able to in any way do it. The thought of it terrified me. So then I was like, I kind of have to do it now. Uh, and then I just kind of started doing it for a couple of years. And, and that's, that's kind of been that, I suppose. So that's it's been going okay, relatively speaking. <laughs> Is it possible to make a decent living at a comic? Because there's an awful lot of people would like to do it. And even people who are very, very good at it, you know, because Ireland's a small place, right? I mean, there's only, I think you probably mentioned most of the comedy clubs that actually exist there with the exception of the comedy seller and one or two others, you know? So is it yeah. possible to make a living at it? Do you have to go abroad to places like Sweden? Do you have to go to London every second week or Birmingham or these kinds of places, you know, in order to make a decent living at it? Uh, very yeah very hard to make it off off touring like insanely difficult if you want to if you want to do it you won't make it off club gigs in ireland at all because there's only like two or three really to pay and they're not going to get you on every week or every month you know what i mean so i was fortunate like over the last 10 years i worked in a in radio which was kind of a perfect complimentary career if you know what i mean so that that was what was really fortunate to do that and then the guys who are doing a full-time it is a case of yeah you have to go to 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 the UK, you have to tour around the country. Uh, some people now are making a lot more money when they're going down like the the online side of it, you know, with the online sketches and the online, uh, the reels and the TikToks and stuff. And you can make a lot of money if you get into like the, the hashtag spun, hashtag ad collaboration side of it. Like there is a phenomenal amount of money that brands are willing to throw at people who have built up a, a big audience from from doing these sketches and stuff. But um, you, you won't make any money at all from club gigs your club gigs are kind of like your training for your own show i would say uh, so if you do your if you do those as nearly practice for your own tour um theoretically you can but again it, it like everything it's kind of like going into business for yourself you think it's going to be fine it's going to wind up being 20 30 40 times far more difficult and a hell of a lot more work um so said i was lucky enough the last while i did it for a couple of years starting off um, I got a gig in a couple of gigs in radio. So that did me. And even now, like so I'm working part-time in an ad agency at the same time. So um, I'm doing a bit of radio again at the weekend. So it's all, uh, it's definitely not easy in any way, shape or form. And I think now it's more of comedians doing the online stuff um, to do it that way and getting across to the UK and even just, you know, just going into Europe. I know guys who are touring across um, English speaking clubs across Europe as well, which is the, the kind of the main way to do it. Yeah. Mm. 
It's fascinating altogether. Who do you look up to in terms of comedy? And what's your process? Are you one of these people that Eddie Izzard famously said that he never writes anything down, which I don't believe for a single second. Billy Connolly says the same thing. Did you, when you had that two-month gap before your first gig, did you sit down? Did you write scripts? Did you bounce them off friends and edit them and then get up and deliver them perfectly? Or did you just fucking wing it? So a bit a bit of winging it. So um, I've kind of changed how I write over the last number of years because I um, I used to get a notepad and I just jot down bullet there might be something in that and i would never i couldn't even use lined paper and lined notepads because it was too i was like too rigid or too structured or it was just annoying me so i used to just kind of capture ideas and then my way of writing it or practicing i just would be speaking it out loud or performing it out loud in my room and just seeing how it kind of felt and and doing it that way um and it, i definitely wouldn't be scripted so i would have started off being very much loose being very much kind of uh winging it exactly like you say, like riffing it a little bit, as you say. But over time, what I found is that approach, um, it's kind of good, but over time, when you find out what works and what doesn't work, you're kind of writing it on stage a little bit because you suddenly realize when I said it this way, that got a better, clearer laugh. Do you know what I mean? Or when I when I phrased it this way, um, it's 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 a better kind of joke or whatever. So you, you wind up sticking to the same punchlines and setups anyway. You might have a little bit of like riffing around it and a little bit of winging it around it, but maybe your punchlines have to be clear because they kind of work. So that's what I kind of think. The other way, like a few years ago, and started trying to be a little bit more technical with joke writing and comedy writing. And I read a load of different books on like, how hey, you structure a joke and, uh, and learned. And then I started writing jokes like that, which would be technically, technically correct jokes. But when I would perform them, they weren't, they didn't actually feel natural for me, if that makes sense. So I was performing these like technically correct, nearly like Christmas cracker jokes. You know what I mean? Like there's a clear setup and a clear punchline um, and they're like wordplay or they're like puns and stuff like that. And I was like, yeah, they're, they're technically good, but I, I kind of don't, um, I kind of don't uh, do that approach anymore. I think it's a, it's a mix of both because as soon as you start, what I found, if you start talking out loud and practicing a set out loud, you'll get other ideas while you're standing there performing and stuff will just start falling out of your head and you'll start vomiting out of your head. And you're like, oh, actually that might work X, Y, and Z. And you'll kind of write it down. Um, so I'm more of a kind of bullet point kind of guy. Like even when, like my show at the moment is about 50 minutes. It's not scripted, but I have clear bullet points and sections of the show that I have to hit. But because I've done it in my head so much or performed it so much and kind of polished it from performing it, I know I know what the lines are, if that makes sense, especially for like the the, the punchlines and especially for that. So there's pros and cons to both of it because a very, very scripted show can become, you know, very good because you'll have your clear setups and your punchlines. My only thing with that is that to me, that's not the stand-up that I want to do because that's nearly like a play if you have scripted it word for word. To me, stand-up can be a little bit more conversational and a little bit more loose and a little bit more comfortable because as well as that, if you what I find, if you have a very, very scripted joke or scripted bit, something happens in the crowd or someone says something and throws you, you've no way to get back in because you're like, it's just not natural. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, that has to go to this line. That has to go to this line. So I think being a little bit looser gives you a little bit more freedom to roll with the punches, so to speak, or have a bit of crack with the crowd. So it's definitely a mix of two. I can, you know, See, I can see the huge benefits now of if if a joke isn't working that you do script it out and you do write it out and then you can look at it and kind of go, oh, it isn't working because this is here and that's there and this isn't actually working at all. You know, like they'll say one of the rules of writing jokes is that the, the punchline always has to be at the end of the of the sentence. It has to be at the end and maybe you've just put it a tiny little bit too early and you're just not giving yourself enough breathing space or you're not building up enough 
expectation or contrast or suspense or whatever it is. So those kind of things work. So it's definitely, I've changed over the years. I went from never really writing anything down at all to going the complete opposite way. I'm now still trying to find a bit of a balance between stand up and just talking shite and seeing, seeing what happens and, and capturing some ideas uh, and then having an option there to maybe be a little bit more technical with it to see if you can work it out, if that makes sense. If I can ask you a very personal question, Cormac, what's the most Netflix have offered you for a special at this point in your career? <laughs> it's still a six-figure sum, but they're all zeros. <laughs> you never know. I'll try to get some executives to come to the show here in Stockholm. Let's talk about that now. So it's in, is it the 17th of February? Saturday, the 17th of February, you're going to be here with us in Stockholm. Do you know anything about the setup? Is there going to be other comedians? Is it you coming out cold? Do you know anything? Has the, the club owner, the promoter told you anything about what you can expect? And not too much. I think there's a couple of other comics on, so I'll be headlining and closing closing out the show. Um, so yeah, I, there'll be an MC. Jonathan, I think, is the guy who organised it, who booked me. And then there's two or three, I think, other comics on uh, before that as well. So you know, you'll have options. That's the good thing. You'll have options of, of other uh, comedians to see as well. So there should be yeah, a good line of lads on and ladies, I think. Is it a very competitive industry? Because I remember back in the day, there used to be, you know, there's all sorts of things about people stealing material. You know, the, the, the comics who are higher up the hierarchy might nick your best line. And in fact, it happened to somebody I know and it went on to be a very successful routine that was just swiped in one of the, you know, those cellar bars in Dublin, you know. Do you find the, uh, the other comics like Pat and I think are they supportive? Do you help one another out? Tips about gigs and pension plans? Or is it very much, you know, I'm going to keep to myself and I'm not sharing that with anybody? Um, I often find I like to draw the comparison that for me, it feels like, you know, those like beauty pageants you'd see in America where you'd hear these stories of their, you know, girls telling each other they're fat and then they cut their dresses open and they ruin it. There is definitely an element of that if you want there to be an element of that, right? From a comedy perspective where, you know, oh, I didn't think you did well and all this kind of stuff and, and rob material and trying to undermine you. Like, like everything, there's definitely that. Loads and loads and loads of comedians are misfits. We don't have any sort of emotional intelligence or social skills. And we've landed up here in comedy land because we can't do real jobs and nine to fives. Do you know what I mean? Like we just, so there, there's a lot of that stuff that can go on if you want it to go on. You can put your head down and just keep to yourself and ignore that and just do what you need to do. And just and just crack on like uh, there's so many comedy clubs after popping up now. There's so many people doing comedy, um, and you'll kind of just find your 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 clique. You'll find the people that you like working with. You'll find the people you like gigging with, just like everything. And um, like my mates are, I've uh, two or three really good mates in comedy, and they would be really supportive, and they'd throw you gigs when you need gigs. And I'd try to do the same for them. I'd be like, hey, listen, there's stuff going up. So you'll find your support network within your friends, just like Enten, um, and you can leave all of the politics behind if you want. Like there's, there was even, uh, there's a Facebook group for comedians in Ireland, and that often descends into carnage and chaos, which is comedians bitching out at each other left, right and centre and club promoters bitching with, with, with comics and acts and then people jumping in and it's just, sometimes it's funny, you know, it's one of those things where you grab a thing of popcorn and you just sit back and look when you want to see what's going on. Um, but it, it can be, you know, it can be, it can be massive drama. I've heard, you know, there's been voice notes left on Booker's voicemails just absolutely abusive stuff. There's been, I was at a gig in Tallow with a lad and he got himself in a round. He got a black eye at the end of the night. So there is that if you want it, like everyone, it's kind of like, you know, you go into a company and you can just join the gang that bitches about everyone and you can just fester in that little group if you want, or you can just put your head down, do what you need to do and, and just focus on 
what you want to do, what you want to get out. Like everyone, yeah, there's definitely an element uh, <laughs> of the Regina. Is it the Regina Doherty's? Not, she's the politician. Who's the Regina from uh, Mean Girls? Jesus, I don't know. Regina. I've never seen it. <laughs> right. Add it to the list. <laughs> yeah, that'll be on the list. After I see you, that'll be the next thing that I absolutely must watch, you know. Uh, I just have this vision of you sitting there in your shorts and t-shirt at home with a bowl of popcorn and we're seeing somebody is typing, you know, when you're just waiting for the next Facebook comment to drop in there, you know. <laughs> if I was to ask uh, Pat McDonald uh, what kind of a comic you are, what do you think he would say, comic? Oh, that's a very good question now. Thank you. That's very Jeez, That's a tough one. What would he say? Um, um, what would Pat McDonald? I'll say, well, one, I'm a very convenient comedian for him because I'm literally around the corner from some about five or 10 minutes. Uh, so I, I pick him up and I can drop him to and from the gig. So a very convenient and efficient. Um, what, what would he say? Um, um, uh, maybe he'd say uh, very, very good at having a bit of crowd work because I, I do like doing a little bit of that stuff. Um, and and maybe, maybe he'd say, uh, you should go see him on the 17th in February. <laughs> so I think he'd say no, but yeah. I'd, yeah, so I mean, I, I hope so. I hope he'd say that. It's a good question. I don't know. Maybe that. Maybe the, the, the convenience for having a car around the corner, good with the crowd work and the hosting and the kind of emceeing style of things as well, too, I'd hope. Yeah. It's about, I love my comics to be funny. And if they can't be funny, I hope they're convenient and helpful and good for a lift home. You know, that's, that's tremendous. <laughs> all to get out of. Um, what do you hope comes out of this comic? Because this is, you know, I'm not going to say it's a big opportunity for you, but there's a good community here. I'm sure many of the Irish people here who live over here are going to come down and see you now. Would you like to make this, you know, would you like to be one of those comedians who tours around through English speaking clubs in Europe? Is that where you see your future? Is it the Netflix special you want to get into? Do you want to be a TikTok Instagram comedian? Where, where do you think you're going to find your niche so to speak for the rest of your career i like i i would love to be traveling around europe doing gigs like if that was dream career scenario uh, and you're doing that full-time i'd be like unbelievable yeah, that'd be that'd be amazing and i would sell it to the wife as we're just going traveling it's fine you know what i mean she loves her holidays i'm like let's just uh mix up the the goals here and do that no but i, I definitely love love to do that and to be able to to kind of gig full-time um completely would be the dream number one, you know what I mean? I think that'd, that'd be phenomenal as well. Netflix special uh, and TikTok stars, who knows? And the next, like a, a decently filmed uh, special will be uh, a goal as well at some point. And if Netflix, you know, want to hand you 40 million quid for that, you're not going to turn it down. You know what I mean? But um, to do it full time um, will be around Europe and around Ireland. Yeah, would be would be phenomenal. Maybe a bit of TV and radio and some other stuff and, uh, you know, a few ideas for a few books that uh, have yet to be to be to be written yet so we won't uh, reveal all yet but the full-time gigging i think would be brilliant like dream scenario if you could do like six months of gigging and just you know break your backside doing that and then take six months off that that'd be <laughs> you know that, that'd be ideal yeah, but um we're not there yet yeah yeah, yeah. But the first step en route to that uh, world domination and six months on, six months off life, that starts here in Stockholm on mm -hmm. the 17th of February. Comic Moore is playing here. We'll include a link. And there are some early bird tickets that are available for 150 Swedish crowns. Lads, they might as well be giving them away, right? So as soon as you're done listening to this conversation, get on there, get your tickets booked, and we will see you when Cormac Moore comes uh, on February 17th. And Cormac, if I may, I might actually talk to you when you're here as well. We might, you know, record a minute or two of the show and we'll have a chat and see if it did uh, reach those lofty expectations that you have of the wonderful oh, Swedish yes. public. There you go. But for now, Carl, oh, thanks. No, sorry, that'd be amazing. Like if we're all sitting here and you cut back to this and be like, I think the gig will go absolutely fine. And then it just cuts to me sitting backstage with you going, oh, mother of God, ushering out the back of the club into a car going, never again. We're leaving <laughs> Sweden. 
Phil, you promised me people would come. Where are they, Phil? Where are they? <laughs> but for now, Cormac, listen, thanks so much for talking to me. We're really looking forward to seeing you here on the 17th of February, my friend. Thanks a million for having me, Philip. Cheers. There you go. And after hearing that, lad, you should be queuing up to get your tickets to see Cormac Moore on the 17th of February. I know I'll be there and I hope you'll be joining me. Uh, that is it for this week. A little bit shorter. Actually, when I'm on the subject of that, right... Um, so myself and Aunt Morrissey and Molly Breed, we do be talking because we're forever trying to make the podcast bigger and better and reach more listeners, right? So myself and Aunt have been reading a book and uh, Aunt was given it as a present, I think, over Christmas because somebody in his family knew that he's working with podcasts. But anyway, in the heel of the hunt, they were saying, you know, what's the perfect length for a podcast? And some people were saying, ah, 25 minutes is the average commute, right? Now, we started this podcast with short enough and then it got up towards the hour mark and sometimes Jesus went mad altogether and today we're up to 35 minutes. So kind of need to know from you, what would you like? Because sometimes we pop in uh, two interviews in one podcast and that tends to make a fairly long one. Sometimes the interviews are half an hour maybe 40 minutes um sometimes longer sometimes shorter so if you could let me know just send me a message on instagram or or anywhere you find me on social media that kind of thing and just let me know uh, what works for you because as i say we want to make sure that you get to listen to all the episodes all the content we want to make it convenient for you if it works in your tunnel bonnet trip or uh, if you're Paddy Looney driving out towards Jimbo there, you might want an hour of a podcast that'll get you from sort of North Hull all the way out. What do I know, you know? But do let me know anyway, and we'll try to take that into account in the future because uh, we're delighted to have the audience that we have, but of course we're always trying to grow it and make it better for you. Listen, I leave it at that for that for this week, lads. Hopefully you'll be feeling better next week, but we will, no matter what, next week we will be back with another episode of the Irish in Sweden podcast. Until then, take care of yourselves and take care of one another. Good luck.